Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, welcome to The Table Podcast. My name is Bill Hendricks. I'm the Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. It's possible there's no other passage of Scripture that is more cited than Psalm 23. And what a wonderful psalm it is. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And when we hear those words, many of us tend to think and associate them with, you know, kind of a bucolic painting of, of a lovely meadow and a flock of sheep. And, and we may even hear strains of Beethoven's pastoral symphony in the background. And that's not bad, but in thinking that way, we actually probably misunderstand one of the central images of Scripture. And in the process, we also miss out on some of the key insights about leadership that the Bible has to offer. And I've invited today Dr. Tim Laniak from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, formerly with Gordon-Conwell, now with our Daily Bread uh, ministry and, and its global center for outreach. But he also runs something called the uh, Shepherd Leader Ministries, of which he's the director. And this is a ministry focused on equipping leaders to think biblically about leadership. And where you're going to see the tie-in with Psalm 23 is the name of a book that absolutely began to transform my own thoughts about leadership Shepherds After My Own Heart, Pastoral Traditions and Leadership in the Bible. So, Tim, welcome to the Table Podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be with you and with all those that listen to you. Well, thanks. So, let me, let me just kind of start with your own story here. So, how does the Bible and leadership and shepherds and sheep kind of all coalesce into a a constellation for you that's become almost like a, a life message. Uh, walk us back through that journey. Okay. I, uh, I grew up in a Christian home with a lot of uh, great Bible, uh, Bible uh, school, Bible church, uh, Bible in the home. And I felt my life was really transformed by scripture when I was in high school. And I also felt called into missions and um, was it wasn't long before I had a chance to, uh, as a college student, to make a trip to the lands of the Bible as part of a Bible program. And I really had my first cross-cultural experience then in the Bible itself. I had my culture shock. I had, in some ways, my first mission trip into the Bible. And that made it possible for my two twin passions of scripture and culture and missions on the other side to come together and for a lifelong interest in cultural difference and um, has just always been interesting to me as uh, not only the, uh, the ways in which people live out the gospel in um, various ways around the world, throughout church history and in the global church, but also the way the Bible itself has been revealed in cultural context and how a certain amount of cultural competence is really necessary to make sense of a world of diversity, but also to make sense of the Bible. So those twin passions fueled a lot of Bible education that eventually led to a doctoral degree. Uh, they also uh, fed a sabbatical in the lands of the Bible where I studied among shepherds. And 
leadership in particular, to get back to your question, wasn't something I was even aware was that much of a topic for study. But it turns out that my own uh, my, my own journey in ministry, my own career, in a sense, has uh, begun around the, the uh, era when people were starting to pull leadership out from management. And some of the early works on servant leadership and transformational leadership that came out in, in the 70s and, and following, those, those were starting to create another field of its own. And, and as you know now, you can do a search on leadership and see millions of resources yes. Um, it, it didn't touch me, it didn't affect me, but I was at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Charlotte when we had a Lilly grant to fund three years of roundtables with seminary presidents who would be enriched with Bible study as they also did research projects on leadership. Um, so it could be anything from administrative faculty to uh, you know, running satellite programs and to kind of focus on the leadership dimensions of it. But I eventually became the biblical theologian for the, the actual Bible content we were doing together. Now, having lived in Israel before then, being aware, uh, you know, taking groups to Israel, including um, some from Dallas, I remember um, one summer, um, I knew that everybody was fascinated with the world of the Bible that was a Christian who made their way there for any kind of a pilgrimage or study program. And I knew that everybody always wanted to stop the bus if there was a shepherd with sheep. Um, and you couldn't tell them we have plenty of pictures. You can you can get them when we get home. Everybody wanted their own pictures of sheep and shepherds. And they wanted the authentic one, experience. It is. And it's and it tends to be kind of one of those moments in in the lands of the Bible, especially Israel, where people go the most, where they look at outside the bus and they think it's like time has been flattened. And all of a sudden, I'm in the land of Abraham, I'm in the land of Jacob and, and David and Jesus. And so I couldn't help but assume that most people that were in pastoral ministry had lots of resources that explained shepherding, because it's just so prevalent in Scripture. So uh, interestingly, about the time I was doing this work with the Lilly-funded roundtables, I was eligible for a sabbatical and I had to do a, a sabbatical proposal for our trustees a couple of years in advance. And I made a proposal for a Hebrew exegesis manual to do with a colleague in South Africa. So I, I sort of put that aside uh, and started working on it while I was doing these roundtables thinking, okay, we're going to bump into stuff on shepherding. So I started to get more intrigued by what seemed to be a lack of resources for pastors that were deeply exegetical. There were certainly people who had titles in books, like they smell like sheep, things like that. Um, and even Escape from Church Incorporated, Glenn Wagner wrote with a, a good chunk of, on Ezekiel 34. But um, I spent about a year looking for shepherding resources that were truly biblical and, and biblical theological. I thought that was really the important thing. And what I found were some deep dives on, you know, passages like Psalm 23, Ezekiel 34, John 10. Uh, but, you know, to my surprise, not more. And then I did another year of research before I ever went on sabbatical on metaphor and the power mm -hmm. of figures of speech and how central they are to Semitic thinking and writing and how central they are to Scripture and to the actual theological fabric of Scripture. Now, let's, so, let, let me jump in and ask an yeah. obvious question. Yeah. Just for the sake of some of our readers, you know, yeah. we talk about a metaphor, just yeah. simple definition of what you really mean by that. 
A metaphor is a comparison between two things that is described in direct language. So you'd say, you might say, for example, in the Middle East, someone might say, my throat is a desert rather than saying I'm thirsty. And a simile technically would be my throat is like a desert. But if you, you, when you make that kind of flat, direct comparison, it's very graphic and concrete and it triggers your imagination. Right. And as one of many figures of speech, we actually find the Bible, uh, when we discover how rich it is in analogies and metaphors, figures of speech, we realize that it's actually triggering our imagination all the time. And metaphors, in some ways, are like uh, little explosives that kind of pack all kinds of associated meanings all at once. So if you say, the Lord is my shepherd, to someone in the ancient world, they would have thought of a lot of things. They wouldn't have thought of one thing. They would have thought of a number of different dimensions. So I like to think of them as micro-narratives. Um, we often talk about the meta-narrative of Scripture, but I think in some ways, some of Scripture's greatest themes are really captured and compressed. You might think of them as zip files in these metaphors. That's a great analogy. Yeah. A so great anyway, metaphor. I, I, I wrote exactly. So I, I can't help but think analogically now. Yeah. So I ended up writing my book on Hebrew exegesis before I left on sabbatical, and I went to the Albright Institute for Archaeological Research as, as their annual professor to do research on Bedouin and uh, on, on ancient shepherding practices and texts. So I didn't just go live with Bedouin, I didn't just interview Bedouin, but I was doing something that you can call ethnoarchaeology, which is when you take modern uh, cultural uh, practices and you use them as a guide to help fill in the gap between ancient practices and modern ones when literature sometimes is, and archaeological remains themselves, are somewhat limited. So people that live in the desert often, often don't leave a lot of ruins and, and remains, and the texts are often very scant and often written by outsiders. So I had kind of a modern insider's view, and I put it together with an ancient outsider's view. So it's not just a translation there. It is a translation, but it's a, it's a contextual bridge you're, you're trying to right. build. Right, right. Geography is what stayed the same, and geography has a lot to do with traditional life ways. Uh, so how people raise sheep and goats relatively unchanged until the modern era, which gave rise to political boundaries, which limited people for migration, grain and water trucks, which also actually compromised some native skills, uh, machine guns, <laughs> AK-47s and Uzis populate most tents. Uh, that changed things. So not, I had to show some Bedouin how to use a slingshot. <laughs> you know, just, just when you think, you know, the Bible was uh, right there in front of your eyes. These guys don't know as much. And also some of the fabric production, they, you know, it used to be that they could make something out of every part of a sheep or a goat. And now they're more uh, commercially driven. Um, but I was able to interview people that had lived prior to some of those realities or they at least knew the stories and um, had some collective memory. And so what were some of the fascinating things that you discovered about that way of life? Well, I learned that shepherds were um, talented in a, in a kind of multidisciplinary way. Hmm. They were 
uh, desert experts. So even to today, today, they have certain Bedouin that are hired. Uh, it's called a Bahep when you're a guide in the desert. Some of them are hired by the Israeli army, for example, in Israel, because they know how to work. They, you know, the desert's a complex place, even in the daytime. But for them to be able to figure out where you are at night's amazing. But there are also veterinarians. Uh, again, back before the days of veterinarians with specialization, they really had to be able to save a flock from a, a, an epidemic. I mean, imagine what we're facing with COVID-19. They lived with that kind of peril. They were, they were really also kind of geographical and climate experts. You could be in a canyon and you could have your flock washed away if you didn't understand uh, the seasons and also uh, what, what kind of soils that you were in and what, what would be the impact of, of a flood. Um, they're, they're fighters. I, I've often had Bedouin that I was trying to get me to tell stories about sheep and goats, and they'd rather tell me about people they killed who were marooned out <laughs> in the desert. <laughs> um, oh, man. They're, they're also very, um, they are poetic. I, I mean, when people think about Psalm 23, they think maybe quite often of David uh, kind of sprawled under a, a tree in the shade with his lyre right. uh, with plenty of time to write poetry. That's, I mean, I, I never met shepherds who had much time for anything. They're just like farmers and shepherds anywhere in the world. It, they work day and night. However, they are a kind of poetic people. I, I had one day when I went out with shepherds where I said I did not want a translator. I just took a yellow pad of paper and I wanted to write notes on my own observations early on in my time. I, I wanted to have some sort of unpolluted uh, by any, even my own questions. I didn't want to have uh, pollute any in, input. And just, uh, you know, as you probably have heard, shepherds will have their own flocks, but they'll bring them together. The flocks will follow a shepherd by a sound right. and they can combine them. And then they'll go at the end of having coffee or tea. They'll leave together. Well, we had a bunch of shepherds all come together. They all started making coffee. And then one of them uh, took like a little flute that he made out of a broken broomstick, a little plastic mm -hmm. broomstick, started to play. And the guys were just dancing and singing. And they just, wow. it was just natural. And I studied some Arab uh, poetry and there's just lots of poetry about the desert, about, about, about women uh, written by men, about the stars, about sheep and goats. So what you read in the song of songs, you know, about these flock animals and fruit trees and all, there is something in that um, kind of that Semitic psyche that often expresses itself in proverbs and in poetry. So let me ask a pair of questions here. On the one side, what does a sheep mean to a shepherd? Yeah. When a shepherd looks at that sheep, like what's going through his mind and what's yeah. his attachment? And conversely, if I could put it this way, what does the shepherd mean for the sheep? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been told it's, I don't know if it's true or not, that sheep are very dumb, but you know, to the extent that they even think about it, you know, what, even if they don't think about it, what's the importance of that shepherd to the sheep? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question, Bill. Uh, for the shepherd, I think it's important to regulate our sentiment down into pragmatic reality and to realize we're talking about people for whom uh, flock animals are their livelihood. So there is Which a basically means their bank account. In other words, it is. It's a mobile capital account, yeah. and it's at risk um, in a you know in an environment that has a lot of um, it, it's not very hospitable, and it's also hostile. 
So they, they care about the flocks making it through pregnancy to good quality, healthy births. They'd love to have twins. They'd love to have births twice a year. They want to have um, the animals need to be in good condition before so that they have good milk products and they have good fiber products. And so they, they look at them that way. I think one thing that may, maybe is important to realize is that when the, the Bible reflects the intimacy that is there between sheep and shepherds, there is a fundamental assumption in their world that this is a commercial enterprise. And therefore, and you could say that the affect, the affect side of it is a bonus. Mm. Um, I, so one of the things that I learned was that, you know, there's a difference between an owner and the hired help, the owner and the owner's family and any hired help. They actually try to hire people that are um, related to them. And if they're not related, I've even, I even met someone who was adopted as an adult. I asked the guy what his name was and he told me his name. And he said that was given to my father by the family that we work for. We're, we're now part of that household. Um, so I, I also learned that there are shepherds at very high levels of ownership where there are thousands of, of flock animals. And in biblical times, they, like in Abraham's time, there were shepherds in the neo, in, in this kind of old Babylonian period that, you know, numbered in the hundreds of thousands for the temple, for, you know, for the palace and the temple, huge, huge numbers of animals. So there is this commercial underlay. And the only reason I emphasize that is not because I think that that should dominate the way we view our relationship with God, but I think we ought to appreciate the fact that the ownership is a given. Mm. The intimacy is the bonus. <laughs> and I think that God's sovereignty, God's ownership over us uh, ought to be understood as a given. It's a fact. And, and whether or not we get the intimacy we want uh, is it, it's like a negotiable in a grace environment. I mean, you know, right. that's not something that you can expect. Um, well, that, and that's also, a fascinating I, insight. I, it, it, to me, it gives a new layer to the saying of Jesus, where your treasure is, there, there will your heart be also. Right, right. And, and if that treasure happens to be a sheep, that, that, that's just an interesting thing yeah. to think about. Yeah. Well, I also tend to think that in the New Testament, there's a, there's a, a, a welcome into the family business. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're all working for the chief shepherd. We're under shepherds working together. And there is a sense that these are the assets of the kingdom mm. and they require the same level of sacrifice that Jesus made as the good shepherd. The, the assumption is that the sheep value the most in, in this business and that we have been adopted not only as sons, but we've been adopted to work in the family business. And sometimes I think we often separate the two. We want to get our justification separate from our sanctification and our service. But God doesn't just set Israel free. He sets them free so they can be in a covenant. And in that covenant, they have a mission. So There's a stewardship. I see kind of all that wrapped up together. A yeah. stewardship. Yeah. Exactly. So now what is the, what does the shepherd represent to the sheep? What, what is it? What does the shepherd mean? To the absolutely sheep? everything. The, um, a sheep has, Sheep and, and, and goats are raised typically on the margins of uh, subsistence economy uh, agriculture. So right at the point when there may be enough rain for barley and maybe enough for wheat, 
you know, you're kind of out there. And that's partly because if you have enough rain for uh, a really good wheat crop, for example, you might then choose to, uh, you know, farm your grains and also even vegetables. And you might even raise cows like they do up in the northern parts of Gilead and Bashan. You see the poetry in the Bible about them. Mm-hmm. So they're already in this liminal space. They they can manage to survive with the heat, but they literally need water every day. It's just, it's, they do not survive. So, so their body is not really made for the desert the way camels are. And then you add to that, they don't have any defense. So they're out on the perimeter of any settled life where you have a lot of the predators, the hyenas, the donkey, the, uh, the wolves, the, and, and then biblical times, even tigers and bears, um, and, and you know, throughout history, there have been a lot of these large predators that have been there. But this is sort of a nightly affair that these animals that move in that are nocturnal predators, they're going to move in on flocks that are often just simply sleeping around a shepherd. There's no such thing as, a, a you know, in, in the ancient world of having this nice pen where you have a gate and fences. Right. This is this is just finding a little enclosure sometimes or else I, I've seen a big circle of sheep. And they're literally in concentric circles around a sleeping shepherd in the middle. And that's how they go through the night. And they have wow. some guard dogs around the edge. So they, they need help. They need help with the, any disease. They need help with any predators. They need help to find food, to find water. And even when they have it, I mean, it's terrible to say, but if they find a, a water source, and certainly if they find a cistern, they'll push each other in and drown. So they need to be managed and, you know, completely. Mm. And they'll, they'll walk off a cliff too. I don't, I don't think, I haven't heard any shepherds say they were stupid. I hear lots of people in pulpits say that we're just like sheep because we're stupid. I don't think so, Bill. I, I think the key is that we're dependent and that we're prone to wander, to use the words of the hymn. Those are things that are typical of them. They follow the tail in front of them. They follow the trail in front of them. They, they don't have good vision. So if they hear a shepherd, they'll move, but then they're looking at the ones around them to know exactly which way to go. So they are, they are um, easily victimized by the environment and by their limits. So when the gospel says Jesus looked on the crowds with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Right. Yeah. There's the allusion to the old Testament Ezekiel, but that's a real statement of the vulnerability of the people Spiritual. Yeah. It also rips off of something that's pretty common in the prophets, and that is people that have bad leaders are often um, described as people without leaders or people without shepherds. Yeah. So, like, you know, Jeremiah and Ezekiel kind of go back and forth between, you know, your shepherds didn't do this, or they'll just say you didn't have shepherds, so you wandered. And when you wandered, literally says in Ezekiel, then you became prey for the wild animals. So I'm sure Jesus was uh, at least uh, almost every time shepherding language is used in the Bible, it's it's obliquely at least referring to bad leaders. And so Jesus in John 10 has all the all the leaders in John 9 in mind, I'm sure, when he tells talks about himself. So these are all people that don't care enough. And consequently, people are really just leaderless. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. 
how did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, I want to move to applying all of this to the topic of leadership, particularly leadership today. Before I do that, I, I, I must ask you to touch briefly on one of the aspects of your research that just floored me was how you brought out the idea that this, this image of leader as shepherd, this isn't just a biblical thing. I mean, it'd be fine if it was. But, but you show all the way back into recorded history that we have all the way into not only the scriptures, but the surrounding cultures from which those scriptures uh, in which they were written. And then, you know, projecting into, you know, revelation in the future, you know, this motif of the, of the shepherd is just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I do consulting, say, about leadership in a secular or a business environment where people are not all believers, I just simply refer to ancient wisdom um, because I can give you examples from ancient Babylon, ancient, you know, Assyrian sources, Egypt, Greece. I mean, of all things in Greece, they use uh, shepherd for warriors, um, yeah. military uh, leaders. Uh, and right through to today where you know, I had Jordanians tell me that they not only call the king the shepherd of the people, but they also call someone who's a classroom teacher, a shepherd of the classroom, and a business mm-hmm. person a shepherd. It's it's just absolutely uh, pervasive. And I would say the there's a reason why shepherd why why servant leadership has become a widespread um, assumption as the go to for biblical leadership because it confronts the standard human tendency to take advantage of one's leadership position and authority to serve oneself. So that, that makes perfectly good sense. Jesus said the Gentiles lorded over you. But if you were to step back and to say, what is the biblical kind of baseline for talking about leadership? What is the go-to and how, and certainly if you get beyond scripture to say, how would any ancient person have thought about leadership metaphorically, they would always say shepherd. Hmm. So then let's start with uh, uh, let's start with the pastor and the word pastor obviously just yeah. as an English word yeah. dates from yeah. pastoral you know images um, and of course Peter makes a big point that that uh, the the pastor is the the shepherd of the of the sheep what when when you when you talk to pastors of congregations mm-hmm. yeah What's the message that you try to link to for them to say, if this is the biblical model of leadership, what are the implications of that for what you're doing here in this church? There are a number of them. One of them is, I'm afraid that 
because we did this little journey through Latin to pastor, and then it came into English rather than shepherd, we just sort of kept the word pastor. We somehow seem to think that a pastor has many things to do and shepherding might be one of them. And that's just redundant. It's just to be a pastor is to be a shepherd. I think one, one other thing that happens is that pastor sounds a lot like a title and shepherd carries a lot more of the freight of a role. Mm. And the role has to do with taking care of people. It, it, it's being responsible for their well-being, their welfare, the direction of the congregation at all. And you can look at a congregation, there's always shepherds. So you're not, you're not that the singularity of the pastor's role is that the sense that the title is only reserved for one person. It, I think it creates some unnecessary uh, conflict and confusion. I, I, there's a pat, we have some large churches here, like you do in D Dallas, uh, here in Charlotte, where I am pastor of a large church here. So he said, look, I have 70 elders. And he said, I gave them a copy of your book while shepherds watch their flocks. And he said, I want them. I, I told them, I want them to move towards viewing their role as shepherds. And he said, you wouldn't believe how many of them said I'm out. Wow. It's not what I, it's not what I signed up for. They were successful business people in a mega church who said, we've been here to consult with the CEO to make sure that you make wise decisions to keep you out of legal trouble. We did not sign up to care for people. Wow. It's so, very transactional. Exactly. And, and ironically, that the word elder is just as dynamic and relational and non-official uh, like Shepherd is. But anyway, so that, that would help. The other thing I would say is, in the, in the book, While Shepherds Watch Their Flock, I divide up the, the different tasks of the shepherd as really as all coming under different roles, providing compassionately, protecting courageously, and guiding with wisdom. I would say that shepherding is the most um, multidimensional, multimodal, multifaceted kind of role that you could have in a church setting. And actually, in our society, we don't prize generalists. We, we, we prize and reward specialists. Right. And, and we desperately need generalists. And so here we are in a form of human service. If you just think of the sector we're in, we're in a form of human service where people don't know what to make of the title. So you're often in a church where everyone in the church has their own idea of what your job is. Yes. And then you're trying to look inside or you're trying to look in Scripture to see what your job is. And it is, it's a big job because it does involve providing, protecting, and guiding. And you can't just simply delegate all these things out. You need to kind of general contract some of those things together with, with the, you know, other shepherds that are in the mix. And I, I, one of the things that I feel like God's called me to do is to affirm and encourage pastors for being those unique generalists in the kingdom that are actually representing God with the only institution on earth that has a perpetual lifespan. It's the church is going to survive, not necessarily every lo local church, but every parachurch ministry is going to, uh, it could, could rise and fall and that would be okay. But the church of Jesus Christ is going to be around. And that means this is one of those roles that needs to be healthy, robust and, and, um, and intact 
And I see a lot of people buffeted around. So I encourage people to take a journey. You can actually do it every day. Ask yourself, how am I doing at provision? How am I doing at protection? How am I doing guidance? Because Mm -hmm. provision tends to come easily for people pleasers and helping, helping type people. Uh, but protection doesn't. And then protection comes good for people that are more like uh, watchdogs and people in the military and police. And sometimes nurture doesn't come well to them. And I think God's stretching us in in pastoral ministry to be able to oversee a healthy environment that has all of those features to it. And I would say, if you're doing daily inventory, before you ask yourself how you're doing on those three areas, There's a prior question, and that comes right out of Psalm 23, verse 1. If the king of Israel bows down to the king of heaven and says, you're my shepherd, then he gets one thing right that we have to get right every single day. And that is, is God the shepherd of this flock? Is he my shepherd? Hmm. And do I take my cues from him as the owner? I've been adopted into the family. I've been given a task, but do I presume to be the end of the food chain, you know, so to speak, that people report up to me and that's where it stops? Or am I actually showing people the, you know, the real shepherd as someone who will come and go, not because I don't care, but because that's the way humans are. So it has a lot to do with even succession for me. Well, I can see that uh, you know this this way of thinking about one's pastoral responsibilities, uh, in essence, calls for maybe a different scorecard for success than yeah. we've come to yeah. honor. Uh, because really, I would think for a shepherd, the question is, well, how well are your sheep doing? You know, are they healthy? Right. Are they That's provided right. for? Are they protected? Exactly. Are you? Right. Are you? You know? Are you? Right. Are you stewarding them well? Exactly. And, you know, we've done a good job. I'll I'll put it in the best possible light. We've done a good job in the West, especially in the U.S., of analyzing ourselves. We're kind of infatuated with ourselves. We take every possible personality test there is, and we take a job, and there's, there's a disc, and there's something else to kind of help us know ourselves better. But we often will uh, work on the assumption that I ought to only be doing what I'm, what I'm called to do. And I certainly haven't run a DMIN program. I know a lot of uh, a doctor of ministry program. There's a lot of pastors who feel like I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at and uh, what I'm called to do. And I, I understand the value of that. I know God's gifted us and he doesn't expect all of us to do everything all the time. I get that. If, if, if you agree that I get that, listen to the fact that no shepherd I've ever met would hire someone who had a union mentality. Right. I, I had shepherds who said, I said, what are you looking for? I asked a lot of shepherds, what are you looking for? And what I heard was what we, we need someone who will do whatever we ask them to do. Hmm. So, you know, I, I, I I remember just like it was yesterday, nine 11 happened. George W. Bush had become president. He announced his agenda. He was going to make friends with Mexico, use his Spanish, all kinds of things he talked about, but you know what? On nine 11, his job changed because the nation changed. Absolutely. Some pastors have taken a church. They had a suicide and a miscarriage and terminal health all in the same month. Who gets to say what I do and what I don't do? It, it's just what you said. The, it's what the, the conditions becomes your responsibility. Yeah, it's what the conditions presented your flock with. 
Right. Right. I, I love the word you used earlier, multi multidimensional or, or multidisciplinary. Yeah. You know, generalist has a bit of a pejorative tone in our yeah. culture, but yeah. multidisciplinary, I think, probably yeah. captures it in a positive yeah. way. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Uh, the the question is not whether you can, you know, do do masterful work when all the conditions yeah. are perfect. The yeah. question is, can you do, you know, uh, passable work under very difficult conditions that may present themselves? But you've got this higher vision of, I got an yeah. answer to the to the over shepherd for for the condition of these sheep. And do you keep yourself involved? I, I like to say selectively and symbolically in most aspects of the ministry, so that you can be a good general contractor. Mm-hmm. So I had That's one cool. pastor I just loved that he said, you know, when my church was finally big enough, he said I. I realized I'm a terrible counselor. He said, I, I finally just hired a counselor. It was perfect. He said, but you know what? I still counsel once a week for one hour. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, I, ca- I can't get too far removed from what happens in that setting. Absolutely. I don't want anyone to be harmed by my incompetence, but I think he was being humble. And I really appreciate his willingness to say, if I only get reports about youth, if I only get reports about worship, if I only get reports from the counseling center, I'm actually getting the worst side of specialization. I only get the good news. Well, but also I I can, supposedly I can teach and preach well. Yes. I'm not preaching and teaching with any firsthand experience in all the aspects of the church's life that would otherwise helpfully inform me. Yeah, it loses the relevance and it loses the engagement, the personal right. engagement right. that I'm with you in your situation. Right. Um, one of the points that uh, you bring out on your uh, website there at uh, the Shepherd Leader Ministries, Tim, that I think deserves just some emphasis for a moment, is the challenge that shepherd pastors, church leaders they need to be in dialogue with others who are doing similar work. And you've actually created various forms of, uh, of means online by which, by which pastors can do that so that mm-hmm. they're not, if I could use the term lone rangers out there, they, yeah. they're, they're sharing best practice. They're sharing needs. They're sharing prayer. Talk about that fellowship of the shepherds. Yeah. 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 I think shepherding is, is it's an art. And it's, I think ministry in general is often more about the art than about an artifact. So, you know, you go through seminary, you can write an exegesis paper and get a grade on it. It's done. You put it in your file. But, you know, ministry has moments when you are often at your best and the spirit moves. And there are times when you're at your worst and the spirit moves. And there are times when you make a mess of things. And we, there's that dynamic that we're in. And so, in a way, in a way, it's 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 like playing in an NFL game. You know, there's you need to be a part of a team, and there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of feedback sources along the way, and you're not always performing at your best. But you need to keep a lot of the basics in mind the whole time. And this is one of the ways to anchor someone to the basics. That's great. Um, let's take a moment and apply the leadership model. There are many Christians who are leaders out in the work world, 
CEOs and other other yeah. bosses, as it were, or just middle of a manager in a company or a supervisor over a work crew. Um, yeah. Typically, you know, we don't apply that shepherd motif to those jobs, but I think having looked at your research, uh, that's something we need to revisit. Yes. I would love to introduce you to a major manufacturing company that you would recognize the name of in the Midwest who introduced um, on a voluntary basis uh, discussion groups uh, around while shepherds watch their flocks. Mm. I think uh, one of the, I think they probably had a hundred different groups go through it. Mm. And I was just amazed at the way in which the, and, and actually they went overseas with one of their affiliates, did it, the same thing there. Absolutely no boundary at all, no barrier, no sense that this is something quirky. Right. Um, but I, I had a tour during one of my breaks of one of the uh, buildings that had a manager uh, of one of the, you know, s- several of the processes took place for their equipment and manufacture. And everything he described about himself, his own journey, his own role as a leader, he, he framed in terms of shepherding language. And it was, uh, I would think it's an HR dream come true Absolutely. to have people think about um, their role in that way, because it was it's certainly comprehensive enough for anyone in any role. The only thing that changes is, uh, and we, we all have to be kind of culturally competent with this. When you're a parent, you have more uh, you have more to say in the lives of your children. For example, it would be viewed as invasive in some other settings. If you are an employer or a boss, you, you can only do certain things. But if your instincts are to be thinking in terms of providing, protecting and guiding, then at least you have some kind of a, a gyroscope to to help monitor whether or not people are being taken care of. And to, and like you said, to judge yourself on the well-being of the group, that takes humility, but that seems to be the, the important outcome. Well, there's an, there's an inherent ring of authenticity uh, and life-giving uh, quality to what we're talking about here. I mean, who doesn't want a boss that is looking out for them, you know, that's, yeah. that's there to, you know, provide what they need to do a good job, <clears throat> protect yeah. them from various problems, and guide them, you know, when they're trying to figure out what to do. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's a dream boss. Yeah. I was, uh, I was in a meeting one time uh, where I was the boss and we were, I was with a leadership team. We were talking about how to, you know, to get some people's morale higher and whatever. And so people made some generic suggestions. And so, you know, sometimes it's sort of like a financial incentive. Someone else wants a day off. And I said, you know, from what I know of so-and-so, I think their love language is, you know, really public affirmation. And I said, but you know, for this other person, it's just money. Just give me the cash, you know? And we were talking. So I was sort of leading this conversation about how to give everyone really what they needed. And one person said, I have never been in a place where anyone ever talked about the love languages of their employees. Whatever we do is going to be good because, you know, just that level of interest, but yes. I mean, people's morale is definitely based on whether or not they're cared for. Absolutely. And one of the things that I noticed about shepherds is, is, you know, it's this epic 
level of knowledge about their animals. And again, back before they had veterinarians and they had all these other things, they knew their, their sheep, their, their flock animals well enough that they would know if there's a problem and a problem can spread if it's a health related one, but they also know if they were afraid. And so I, I have stories in the book of some of these shepherds, even in the middle of the night, they can feel, they can feel a goat and they know which one it is. And wow. a father who's sick in the tent who says, go, go, go. Um, I want you to get the, you know, the, you that, and he describes it in a certain way. And they, you know, his son, know exactly who it is. is. Yeah. Wow. We got a couple of three minutes left. Um, one final category of shepherds that you talk about are parents, and yeah. uh, and that that almost deserves a whole podcast unto itself. Maybe we we can come back and do that. But just briefly, what what would be some implications, obviously, for parents as they think about that task? I think shepherds. parents. I think parents actually have the most opportunity to apply every aspect of shepherding of the shepherding metaphor. And I would also say that parenting is the first context for all of us to learn to be uh, as adults. It tends to be the first context to learn to be uh, good shepherds. And a lot of what I wrote in the book came as a result of realizing my shortcomings as a, as a parent. It's a, it's a job that it's very hard to feel successful at, but it does require us to keep stretching in all those areas. Yeah, it, it certainly does. Um, and you mentioned the word humility earlier. And I think parenting is something that by its nature uh, encourages humility. Uh, and sometimes that's painful. Yeah. But, but you realize the day that you have that baby, you're in a whole new game of, of service and sacrifice. And, and how you acquit yourself there has a massive bearing on the condition of that, that little lamb that you've brought into the yeah. world. Yeah. Well, Tim, I, I, uh, I just want to thank you for writing, uh, not only writing the book, but the, again, the massive research that you've done and, uh, and the fact that you went out and talked to shepherds and people that, it, it, it's helpful to realize, well, they're not exactly doing it as they did it 3,000 years ago, just because even though the landscape hasn't changed, conditions in the world have changed. But um, it's clear that there's a deep reservoir of insight from this whole motif of shepherding that we can learn about leadership. Well, thank you, Bill. I encourage everyone to, uh, to read the Bible with this lens on. And um, there are some other ministries that are starting to focus on shepherding. And I, I suspect that God wants to renew the interest and awareness of it um, for some pretty significant reasons. Absolutely. And I do want to encourage uh, you as our listeners to check out uh, Dr. Laniak's uh, website there at Shepherd Leader Ministries. Again, just a boatload of resources around this whole theme, you'll be a, a better leader uh, as a result. So, it Tim, thank shepherd, you. Yeah, I'm sorry. Be, it would be shepherdleader.com. Shepherdleader.com. Excellent. Thank you, Tim, for being with us today. And I also want to thank all of our listeners for being with us today. Be sure and subscribe to us on your favorite uh, podcast service. For The Table Podcast, I'm Bill Hendricks. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. 
Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.